that triathlon show 299. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Professor Robert Lamberts of Stellenbosch University and Annemiek Rete of the University of Groningen. In the first part of the episode we discuss a recent systematic review that Annemiek and Professor Lamberts published on functional overreaching in endurance athletes and specifically non-invasive markers of functional overreaching. Then in the second part of the episode we talk primarily with Professor Lamberts about a test that he invented for cycling called the Lamberts Submaximal Cycle Test or the LSCT and its application in triathlon both as a monitoring tool as well as its application as a performance indicator. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products and carbohydrate products for training and racing. If you want to optimize your performance in hot or humid conditions, avoid cramping, as well as just plain and simple, avoid screwing up your race with poor hydration, then take Precision Hydration's free online sweat test that will give you a personalized hydration strategy with a great ballpark estimate for how much sodium and electrolytes you should consume in your hydration. In addition, you can use their quick carb calculator to get fueling recommendations and you can book a free one-on-one consultation to refine both your hydration and your fueling strategy. I will have links in the episode description and show notes to all of these different calculators and resources. You can use the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your first order of precision hydration electrolytes or the precision fuel carbohydrate product range. And thank you to ROCA. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. Roka is trusted by world-leading athletes such as Lucy Charles Barclay, Javier Gomez, Flora Duffy, Morgan Pearson, Summer Rappaport, and many others in triathlon, cycling, speed skating, and other sports as well. All of Roka's products are based on highly innovative research and development and attention to every single detail. No shortcuts are taken, just an intense focus on optimizing performance, function, comfort and design. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Professor Robert Lamberts and Annemiek Röte. Today's guests on that triathlon show are Professor Robert Lambert and uh, Annemiek Rete. Uh, welcome, both of you. Can you just uh, each take uh, take turns to introduce yourselves to the audience? Thank you, thank you, Michael. Thank you. It's nice to be on the on the show and chat a little bit about you know science, science and the applicability in sport. Uh, yeah, my name is Rob Lambert. Uh, I'm originally Dutch, but I've been living in South Africa for the last 17 years. Uh, I work here as a, as a, a professor in exercise physiology at the Department of Sports Science at Stellenbosch University. Um, and and one of the one of the collaborations I have is with, with the University of Groningen, where Annemiek is based. So maybe she can briefly introduce herself as well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm uh, Annemiek Roete. I'm master's student sports science at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And uh, Annemiek, you are the lead author of this, uh, the first paper that we'll discuss today, which is uh, all about markers of functional overreaching in endurance athletes. So 
uh, yeah, can you? I, I'll let uh, I guess you two and Robert can can refer the questions or the answering of the questions between the two of you or uh, distribute them, I should say. But maybe you can start by discussing the background of this paper. It's uh, this review on the markers of functional overreaching. What was the objective that you wanted to to accomplish here? Yeah, so indeed, this uh, meta-analysis comes from a collaboration between uh, Stellenbosch University and University of Groningen. So next to Robert, also uh, Inge Stoten, Ruby Otter, and uh, Marije Elfring-Gremsel were uh, involved. Um, so what we, of course, see in the field of sports science is that the monitoring of athletes has developed quite a lot. Um, athletes and coaches always like to look at what was done during the training, like minutes trained, kilometers done, or velocities reached. And of course, it's good to monitor this load, but the fatigue that might have occurred from that load should also be monitored as the required recovery of a certain load is not a constant. It can differ between athletes, but also within athletes due to factors as sleep, nutrition, hydration, emotional balance, illnesses or injuries that the athlete has to deal with. So currently within literature, there are different states of fatigue between which a differentiation can be made based on the recovery time that's needed to get back to that pre-fatigue performance level. So there is, for example, uh, acute fatigue that is um, part of the overload stimuli that's given in training. And it normally takes about 24 hours to 72 hours to recover from. But then you also have functional overreaching. And that takes a recovery time of about uh, five to seven days. Now, when you go into the longer, the other fatigues that take up more recovery time, we speak of non-functional overreaching or even a full-blown overtraining syndrome. And these actually require weeks to months to recover from and are associated with long-term adverse effects on performance. Well, this, of course, we want to prevent from happening. Therefore, we aim to examine which non-invasive markers can or cannot detect a state of functional overreaching in endurance athletes. And, and one follow-up on that. So you mentioned there first acute fatigue and then the next step on the spectrum is functional overreaching. And one key differentiating factors between those two would be that when we're talking about overreaching, we're usually referring to the fact that you actually see a decrease in performance. However, you have measured that. So let's say you have done a time trial or maybe a... Uh, graded exercise test or something like that you you actually see a, a significant decrease in performance when you are overreached but when you're acutely fatigued you don't necess necessarily see that uh, you can still perform similarly or the same but but you feel fatigued uh, is that is that a correct uh, explanation of the difference between those two terms i think okay. I, 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 so i think the tricky part is it's, it's a spectrum that we work on uh, of course, we 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 need we need an acute fatigue bout to to recover from when we when we train because if you and, and it's interesting in that concept if you look at it that way that yes you need the training but actually the the increasement in performance happens during during the recovery phase itself um, and then there are different states of course of 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 function of of overreaching yourself some of them functional are used quite regularly in the in the sports um, and and non functionally not. Uh, with with functional, you generally get a, a, a either a plateauing of of further improvement in performance, or even a, a slight decrement where it becomes more a decrease when you go to a non-functional reaching status. So so 
yes, I think it plays a role, but it's 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 a very. It, I think that the challenge here lies in detecting it in a very early stage. Um, we know that pushing yourself and pushing yourself slightly into that functional overreaching state is a, is a common training method that's being used uh, w- within multiple sports, but also within endurance sports. Um, and and we're getting very good results out of it. But you know, when when are you staying within that spectrum of functional overreaching? Is it specifically targeted or not targeted? And when are you going into a phase of non-functional overreaching? The 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 big challenge here is you can easily and relatively quickly recover from a functional state of overreaching, where a non-functional overreaching state in in an elite athlete is is detrimental to his his training program. So I, th- I think that's where the challenge really lies. Right. Yeah. So so let's go into the the, the meta analysis and uh, well, as listeners of the show are aware, we have uh, discussed multiple meta analyses and the format of them in the past. The the first step is usually well, you gather all the research that you can find. So so tell us a bit about that. How much research is out there on uh, on this topic, how, and how many studies and participants could you include with your inclusion cr- criteria in in your meta analysis? So, so I think what we need to clarify with, within the systematic review that we conducted, we specifically looked at endurance sports. And so the majority of the studies that we included into and, and were included into our systematic analysis were, were cyclists, triathletes, uh, long distance runners. And we specifically wanted to focus around those topics as well. I think the real challenge what we had with specifically research in this topic is how do you quantify is somebody's functionally overreached and not overtrained or you know non-functionally overreached? So I think that was the that was the tricky part. And then a lot of the research that's out there is not specifically endurance orientated, but very much orientated on acute fatigue of a muscle group, for instance. So when you start off with with 402 articles that were selected and then drilled down through all the schematics. Uh, and we ended up having 12 specific studies that looked at uh, a, a state in which they can prove their uh, cyclists or their athletes were um, overtrained uh, in, a, in a functional way. Um, and then we specifically looked, okay, what are, what are the responses that these different studies actually found in, in what, at what level are they corresponding with each other? So are they either aligned or are they conflicting? Because that, you know, that's the great thing of a systematic review. You can you can have different studies from different groups looking to see if they're finding a similar outcome, uh, and and if 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 they support each other or don't support each other. And with that, you get a you get a you get a feel which markers are able to and which markers are 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 less sufficient or less sensitive. Maybe is the better word to to reflect the state of um, of functional overreaching yeah and uh let's go into those markers then so so which markers did you find were in, were evaluated in these different studies that you included so uh, we can go into what you found about how how sensitive and how good they might be a bit later but just if you if you can list the different markers there are potential options at this point I'm sure, I'm sure we can. We, we've, we've broken them down basically in, in through three different formats. The, the one were more the physiological responses. Uh, then there's a, there's a subsection specifically focusing on, on markers related to heart rate and then more to subjective components. But I think, I think Anamik's got the, the overview on her such as she will be able to give us a bit of an overview on, on which markers we, we found in the systemic review to be able to reflect and which ones we don't. 
Yes, um, let's start with the power output, a very famous one for uh, everyone that's uh, a little bit more than a recreational uh, cyclist. Um, When we examined uh, power output at maximal intensities, we found a decrease in power uh, peak power output, as well as a decrease in the mean power output during time trials when they were functionally overreached. Um, This is, of course quite logical as fatigue is also partly defined as a decrease in performance and power is of course a uh, determinant for performance. Um, But when we examine power output at sub-maximal intensities, so when the intensity was clamped on heart rate, uh, for example, in the studies we examined, it was fixed at intensities of 80 and 90% of uh, maximal heart rate there was an increase in power output when the athletes were functionally overreached. Can we can we stop there? Because that's something that I really want to highlight for the listeners, because I think that's somewhat counterintuitive in a way. Uh, it is and it isn't, because we know that uh, the, the reverse of that, or the I guess the, the other side of that coin is that at the same power, you would see a lower heart rate. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people, or more people anyway, are kind of familiar with and aware of, that when, when you're getting really fatigued you tend to see a lower heart rate response at the same power but but actually thinking about it from that side that you just described it that at the fixed heart rate your power increases that's something that yeah it's counterintuitive but but i think that the key point there is as well that you combine that information with how does the effort actually feel like is the rating of perceived effort higher or is it lower and uh yeah maybe you can you can go into that uh, a little bit yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Michael. Anamiki, you want to respond first? Uh, yeah, it's definitely counterintuitive because a higher power output at a certain uh, clamped intensity is also associated with uh, indeed an increase in performance. Yeah. And uh, Rob, did you have anything anything to add uh, to to that point? Yeah, I, I think I think the first time that we saw this was in a in a case study that we did in a in a cyclocross cyclist, which dates back in I think two thousand and nine from the top of my head, um, and 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 we, this was just a case study where we where we picked this up for the first time, which was which was interesting because, like you said, it's it's a counterintuitive response. If somebody rides at a at a fixed heart rate and his his power is high, we generally associate that with you know he's responding really well to to his training. Is fit or even improving? If you would purely look at that as a marker to guide your guide your training, you would actually say, okay, we'll continue where we're currently at, or or maybe even you know slightly increase, uh, which is probably the last thing you want to do if you if, if somebody's functionally overreached. Um, the the responses that we've seen both on the cycling side, which is a test that is being clamped on on submaximal heart rate, where we see a higher power. And a, uh, a submaximal running test, which was clamped on a specific speed, uh, we saw the same response. So when you clamp somebody at a specific speed and he's functioning over reach, we actually see that that submaximal heart rate is slightly lower, where, where you would also, again, associate that with you know, a better training status. There's different, different components that play a, a role into this. Uh, I think in that very acute fatigue phase, that acute phase of, of being functioning over reach, you've got a increased parasympathetic activity your, your body really wants to get into that recovery mode uh, and that's something i think a lot of a lot of the listeners maybe and 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 you know we as athletes experience ourselves as well if if we would go out for a run or for a cycle as part of our daily training and our heart rate doesn't go up nice and quickly 
it, it almost gives you a bit of a feel that you, you're not super sharp. You know, you, you almost want to be that Ferrari type of engine that wraps up very quickly and drops down very quickly as well. And, and uh, that's in line with, with what we're seeing here. So it's, it's increased parasympathetic uh, activity that, that plays a role in that. It's increased catabolamines that, that tend to uh, stream through the blood flow. It's desensitization of the beta-2 blockers. Uh, so, so it's a combination of different factors that, that can basically explain this response. So it's basically a, a, a system in which, the, in which the body really tries to keep, keep yourself into this recovery mode. And it's really, really tough to, to get that. With that in mind, with your heart rate not going up or not easily going up and asking somebody to write at a fixed heart rate, let's say 140 beats per minute, if it doesn't want to go up, the only way then to get it up is to push up more power than than what you normally would. So, so that explains those higher power outputs, I think, um, in, in that specific state. But like you correctly said, I, th- I think that the take-home message is here is that you need to look at, at other components as well. And we'll, and we'll get to a few now. We, we will, we'll discuss a few you know, responses in heart rate. And I think an important and, and potentially critical one in this as well is, like, how do you feel? You know, and 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 we gauge that with with Jenny on a Borg scale, a rating of perceived exertion, where probably a lot of the listeners are familiar to. That can either run from from zero to ten, or from six to twenty, based on which one you prefer to work with. But it's combining those different parameters and put them together uh, to be able to use the data of a submaximal test to guide you in in how you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And uh, Annemiek, do you want to continue to run through the list of markers? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, we have another uh, a bit of counterintuitive uh, response found in heart rate recovery. Um, this is um, when you stop your exercise at a certain uh, point, You, um, the heart rate recovery is actually how fast the heart rate goes down in about 60 seconds after you quit it with the exercise uh, bout. Uh, when functionally overreach, heart rate recovery is faster, so your heart rate goes quicker down. Well, this, again, is also associated with a higher fitness level, but apparently is also a marker or an indication of actually being functional overreached. Mm, yeah, and this is something I think a lot of people are familiar with because a lot of Garmin watches, for example, they will actually measure your heart rate recovery uh, at the end of once you finish your exercise, and they, they do that automatically for you, so... Basically, when you're seeing a higher number, if you see something like 30 beats per minute, that indicates that in the 60 seconds after you stopped exercising, your heart rate dropped by 30 beats per minute. But when you another time see maybe 40 beats per minute, then yeah, that could be either a sign of being fitter or being functionally overreached. Yes, exactly. Yeah, maybe maybe to maybe to, to go on to that as well so so yeah I, th- I think this is quite interesting to see and and based on those findings we and and you know the other thing that is currently measured a lot next to heart rate recovery is heart rate variability it's it's getting popular in lots of watches it tells you a little bit your your state and it helps us to you know gauge or uh, the the amount of of quality sleep we're getting within garmin watches uh but w- interesting with, with within the Within this specific area of being able to reflect the state of functional overreaching, we actually found that heart rate recovery has got that capacity, but heart rate variability markers didn't show to be really sensitive to that you know, acute change in, in fatigue, which is quite an interesting 
finding on itself as well. Um, I, I think this can partially be explained that, you know, if you look at the two next to each other, heart recovery tends to be able to reflect more acute responses in training load, where heart rate variability is more related to the neurological state that, that you're in. And therefore, it's, it's a slightly slower process uh, uh, of adapting. Uh, it, it, it won't massively change from one day to the other. Um, and of course, with, within heart rate variability, a lot of things change over the years. You know, we initially started with measurements that had to be done very controlled with, you know, lying on your back and making sure you had the right breathing rate. But nowadays it's, it's, it's slowly changing. But with regards to being able to, to be sensitive, to be able to pick up that, that state of functional overreaching, uh, the, the systematic review that we've conducted shows that there's not a lot of support support around that specific component. Yeah, and, and the heart rate variability markers that were included in, in the different studies included in your analysis included both uh, morning heart rate variability after waking up, but, but you also had some that were uh, before or after exercise. And uh, so, so there are different kinds of markers in there. Correct, correct. Listen, I, I, I definitely, I definitely feel there is a place for hardware variability and use that as a monitoring tool. Uh, I think, I think what this study shows that it might not be the most sensitive marker to reflect that that acute, you know, that that functional overreaching status. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there was a recent uh, systematic review or meta-analysis about heart rate variability guided training and whether you can get better adaptations by following the basically the advice i think on a daily basis in that case although i might be wrong about that because i don't remember exactly uh but yeah it did find a small positive effect for heart rate variability guided training but obviously that is not the same as being able to sensitively detect a state of uh, functional overreaching so so i think like you say there there is probably a place for using heart rate variability as a as a monitoring tool but uh but yeah you just have to be aware of uh what you can and what you cannot infer from it yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. I actually did a study with 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 a Spanish group with Alejandro Javoyales uh, around around this specific topic, uh, and and in that case, we actually found we could use hardware variability quite well to to guide the the training. So, absolutely, you, you fully you fully right. It's definitely place for hardware variability um, in in different components. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then uh, moving on with uh, the rest of the markers that you in- investigated, Anemik, do you want to uh, continue with that? Yeah, just like uh, heart rate variability, actually, we also did not find uh, resting heart rate to be uh, sensitive for uh, functional overreaching. So, of course, uh, resting heart rate can be useful in monitoring, but it might not be uh, that good in uh, identifying a state of uh, functional overreaching. Yeah, perfect. And uh, then was that all the heart rate markers or uh, did you also look at exercise-based heart rate or we kind of covered that with the power-based markers, I I guess? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We also, in some studies, uh, there was the last of the physiological um, variables we looked at. There were also some studies that examined uh, VO2 uh, max tests. And uh, we also did not find uh, VO2 max to be um, a good marker for uh, functional overreaching. Mm. And that's interesting because at the very start, you mentioned peak power output. And and I should clarify that for the listeners, perhaps that peak power output refers to what you achieve in a a integrated exercise test where you would typically also measure your VO2 max. So, So you can find 
in that case that your VO2 max stays the same potentially, but your peak power output goes down, which would indicate a loss in in gross efficiency if you're doing it on the on on the bike. Uh, so, which is which is quite interesting uh, that 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 could be the case. Yeah, of course, and of course, a high view to max is important for endurance athletes. Uh, but it might be that the predictive value of view to max uh, for athletes or the variability in the test results might not uh, be able to reflect the functional overreaching. Mm, yeah, and then you had a few markers as well. There were. Uh, I guess you could call them subject, subjective markers. So looking at RPE, but also looking at different scales of... Uh, yeah, Robert, you have a comment. Yeah, let me just briefly come back to, to the comment because I, I know what you're referring to. Like, it's weird if somebody... You know, if there's a very good, strong relationship between peak power output and VO2 max, it's it's awkward to see that the VO2 max stays the same, but peak power actually actually decreases in the function of a reaching status. And, and I think it tells us, I think that... What we're aware of is that VO2 max and, and, and you know actually delivery to the to the muscle is is clearly plays an important role in in determining max maximal exercise capacity. But it's and again clearly with with most cases it's it's not purely uh, only O2 that de- decides that uh, that component because if that would be the case that would be directly related to each other. So so clearly there's other factors in that that play a role as well. Um, but if you if you would go out from from the concept that O2 would be the only limiting factor to exercise performance, then you know you almost have a, a, a strange response into that setup as well. But I think I think what we're learning more and more it's a it's a feed forward feed backward system uh, that that determines how much power output at the end of the day you you can do. Other factors around uh, view to max what plays as well is that the, the measurement error around it is slightly bigger. Um, you know, you when you do a VO2 max test, we, we need to calibrate the system. Uh, we need to calibrate the system against a gas a gas bottle with with a certain amount of natural uh, oxygen in there and other components, depending on the system that you're using. The mask needs to be properly fit on your mask, and, and any small leakage in there will create a, a little bit of a measurement error around that VO2 max. So those are the components that might explain why why we're not finding it. In addition. I think what we're finding most is that function overreaching tends to impact more the endurance component and not so much the relatively short components. So people still generally are able to do short sprints relatively well. But if you then look at longer endurance components, they tend to compromise a little bit more on. Mm. Do you, c- coming back to the the heart rate uh when when you discussed the vo2 max and the peak power output there uh, heart rate is definitely not a perfect marker or maybe not even a good marker of of actual vo2 but it is a marker as a proxy if you will and do you think that the, when we see the lower heart rate uh, when you're functionally overreached that is also an indication perhaps that yeah, you're not really at your limit cardiovascularly. You, it's just that your muscles, for whatever reason, cannot use all the oxygen that is delivered. It, it indicates where the the mechanisms may lie in in your not being able to perform at the same level as before. Yeah, I think I think you're raising an you're raising an important part there because, of course, what we see um, what we see is that if you would if you would some pace somebody at the same running speed or at the same power, that in a function of a reaching status, that heart rate is actually a little bit lower. 
which is weird because you would argue if it's a lower heart rate, less oxygen will be brought to the muscle, assuming that the uh, the stroke volume stays the same. But how the heck can he then produce more power? So, so I think there's still components around that that we don't fully understand, that we specifically haven't looked into. So we haven't looked at uh, stroke power, for instance. Does that does that tend to change when when you when you overreach? Because uh, so, so there's multiple factors that that play a role in that in that whole system. Um, what yep. we what we've seen is uh, interestingly, heart rate recovery seems to be a good marker. I think there's there's several studies out there that that seem to be indicative of that. The problem, however, with heart rate recovery is that you preferably want to measure it each time from from the same submaximal heart rate. As as the recovery of heart rate's got an exponential decay, decay, so it will you know it will as you would basically near maximal uh, recover, you'll have a very initial fast phase and then a much slower phase as as you're getting lower towards your resting heart rate again. So to be able to compare heart rate recovery over time. The, the trick there is to always try to measure that heart rate recovery from the, roughly the same submaximal, submaximal heart rate. And that's why, and we'll get into this a little bit later, that's why we, within the LCT, for instance, uh, chose to, to specifically turn things around and within cycling and, and, and ergometers that are relatively easy because you don't have to watch uh, traffic around you um, to actually specifically ask guys to write at a specific heart rate so that we can not only be able to capture power quite accurately, but also measure heart rate recovery each time from the same submaximal point. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll we'll get on to that, and that's that's a great yeah. point. I'm I'm just wondering uh, one thing that uh, came to mind that would be interesting to study is the contribution of anaerobic versus aerobic energy uh, production when you're functionally overreached. Uh, if there might be an increase in anaerobic energy production, because you said that yeah, you might still be able to maintain your short performances but also that would maybe be a reason that heart rate might be might be lower because you're not really fully relying on the aerobic system as much i don't know it's a pure pure speculation but it would be interesting to to look into into that but it would then explain why at endurance performances you you don't perform as well because you would quickly run out of fuel for that uh, that anaerobic energy production if it really increases correct yeah, well, I think I think you're making a fair point there because if you if you look at the LCT, which of course is a relatively shortish test, uh, that's where we see that if you that's where we see actually that the power increases at the same maximum heart rate. Where if you would look at a in an, at a time trial, which is generally substantially longer, then you actually see a decrease in power again. So I think that's why we find those conflicting findings uh, uh, as well with, with within and around heart rate. So. Uh, I agree that it might be interesting why we specifically see that uh, in that lower component and, and which which mechanisms allow um, allow the body to still produce that additional power uh, in that fatigue state, uh, at least specifically in that functioning overreach state. Mm, yeah. Well, let's cover the the last few markers. So, so we have a few. We have the profile of mood states. We have the a, a daily analysis of uh sorry d- uh delta d- d- life demands athletes daily <laughs> and uh and rpe uh you, you can correct you can say that give me the correct uh abbreviation of, of delta or the correct full full version of delta because i really made a mess of it <laughs> yeah delta is uh if i am correct a daily analysis of life demands for athletes right 
Um, yeah, that's a question uh, consisting out of uh, two parts. So uh, you have one part that assesses the number of sources of stress, and then the second part is the symptoms of stress. Um, we found that um, with, it, with functional overreaching, the symptoms of stress increases, while the amount of sources of stress did not increase. Um, yeah, we also ha- examined the POMS, that's the Profile of Mood States Questionnaire, and that one showed to be also be able to reflect functional overreaching. But there has to be a small uh, note to both of those, because for the POMS, we actually also had studies that uh, examined a control group or an acutely fatigued group. And within those groups, there was also a change in the POMS. For the DALDA studies, there were no control groups or acutely fatigued groups included. So we cannot be for certain if the DALDA and the POMS are actually able to differentiate between uh, different states of fatigue. Got it, yeah. Um, And and then RPE is something that you also uh, had as the final marker uh, to talk about here. Yeah, um, RPE seems um, is of course a widely used uh, marker. The rating of perceived exertion um, at maximal level. So, for example, at a maximal test, it is a bit unsure whether or not it can uh, reflect a state of uh, functional overreaching. Uh, this might be uh, as at the at the end of a maximal test, if it is actually executed properly, it should actually always result in a maximal or near maximal RPE score. When we look at RPE at submaximal intensities, it was actually quite able to reflect a state of uh, functional overreaching. Yeah, yeah, and and that's uh, kind of go- goes along with what we were saying there about the power and heart rate. That, that if you also use RPE and you and you find that at the submaximal intensity your RPE is higher than before, then that that might be a clearer sign of of the state you're in. Uh, yeah. Robert. Uh, yeah, let, let me just maybe add a few more things to that. So, so I think RP definitely plays a, a very important, critical role in, in the whole in the whole study here. Um, you know, you, you could argue, well, if RP is so good, why don't we just done ask everybody to rate an RP every day, and then then we know exactly what's going on. We don't have to worry about it. It saves us doing the tests as well. Um, it's, it's, that's an interesting thought on itself, but I, I think what, what tends to happen with, with the rating of perceived exertion, and, and especially when you do a, a, a submaximal test or a, or a monitoring test on a regular basis, that people are, are uh, like habits. And so, so they, they're very keen to always give a similar score. So uh, just coming back to the LCT, uh, which got three different stages, journey scored about uh, 13, 16, and 18, or somewhere around there. Uh, athletes are very keen, even if they f- don't feel fantastic, to still score themselves at 18 because they always score themselves at 18 as well. So I, th- I think there might be a slight uh, uh, slower response in RPE. So people only tend to give themselves a slightly higher RPE when they really start to feel a little bit more, excuse my French, crap than, than when they normally would. Uh, so, so I think, especially in combination with other markers such as uh, you know a change in uh, power or heart rate or uh, changes in heart rate recovery, uh, that that will that gives quite an interesting you know com- combination of different factors that can assist a coach or an athlete to see you know where where is my traffic light? Is it on 
Is it on green, ready to go? Is it on orange? I've, you know, there might be some markers that I'm, I'm not coping really well and maybe I should taper off a little bit. Or is there, a, you know, is, are all the markers on red? And we, you know, we, sh we should really look out and know what's going to happen because it's, it's going to be destructive to the, to the training on itself. Yeah, no, that, that those are great, great points that you raised there. And uh, bringing it home a little bit here, then what in, in practical terms, what would you say that uh, coaches and athletes should uh, take away and consider when it comes to monitoring for functional overreaching? What, what would your advice be? Well, I, th I think for me, the, 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 the most important trick around monitoring and to make monitoring useful is 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 look at multiple multiple components and also to look what we've been doing and what a lot of these the the tests that have been doing in in the systematic review that we've done is is regularly test uh, during a same physiological stressor so, so i think there's two ways of monitoring athletes in general either the one way is to each week or every two weeks do a similar type of exercise and look how you respond to that exercise that allows you to gauge, you know, where your power is at or uh, if you do it on power, where your heart rate is at or if you do it on speed, where your heart rate is at. Uh, and it can, you know, it quite easily combine factors such as heart rate recovery and a, and a rating of perceived exertion. There are standard tests out there in the literature that you can use, but, you know, you could also develop your own test around it as well. Uh, although, you know, it might be less, let me less known around that component as well. The other factor, of course, is, is which become a lot more easier these days is, is monitoring of training data, so field data, and looking at you know, how th things change in the, field, in the field lab itself. And I think from that perspective, uh, we're seeing as, you know, especially how you'd be able to perform after uh, an X amount of kilojoules that you put off or uh, when when you know you've done quite a lot of work that those are important markers to look at so you know you almost want to talk around uh, the unscientific term how fatigue resistance uh, is an athlete or not especially for for endurance sports such as cycling and triathlon yeah and uh, i think maybe let's introduce the lsct here because when when you mentioned there's standardized tests that you can repeat on a weekly basis we'll get onto it in more detail i still have a few questions on on overreaching but but just so the listeners uh, get a get a gist of what what that's about can you just describe the the protocol uh, the lsct is the lambert submaximal cycle test uh, and uh, yeah you can google it and you'll find the protocol but uh, robert can you just talk us through it uh, real quick and we get we get an idea of what it is yeah so so th so this came long time away from from my from my work when it started in in science uh, i think that the philosophy behind it was to, to expose a in this case a cyclist or triathlete to a to a standard stressor and then look at how they would respond yes or no and um, we and, and as we already experienced in, in previous studies, you know, heart rate recovery had some potential to to really be able to monitor athletes over time. We were quite keen to measure heart rate recovery quite accurately. So after uh, looking at all the different possibilities to either, you know, clamp power in a, in a submaximal test or clamp heart rate in a submaximal test, we, we decided to go with, with clamping heart rate. So what we're doing within the LSCT is we, we're asking cyclists <coughs> who, um, who generally sit on an indoor trainer. Uh, to write uh, six minutes at 60% of their personal uh, max heart rate, followed by six minutes at 80%, and then followed by three minutes at 90% of, of max heart rate, after which they 
stop exercising and we kept your heart rate recovery at the end. We also tend to capture uh, RPEs uh, during each stage. Uh, you know, that has grown over the years to be able to collect uh, the changes in cadence because people are free to choose their cadence. And, um, you know, we can even look, we're currently looking at uh, RMSSD during exercise as well, uh, during those components. So this, again, there's a multifactorial approach that then helps us to, to gauge where people at. Um, from there, there's been studies specifically in cyclists that look around, okay, how well does that test then relate to uh, performance parameters in cycling? So we did tests around you know, how predictive is it of a 40K time trial, how predictive is it of a VO2max or PPO? Uh, and, th and that came from those studies that came out that you know there's a good relationship between the submaximal test and those cycling performance parameters. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it's, it, it seems to be very suitable for that specific sport. Yeah, no, that's great. And that uh, that explains how you can, well, it, it basically, as you mentioned, you, you clamp heart rate and then you can uh, see how power develops, but also RPE and uh, and heart rate recovery at the end of the test. So so when you standardize that, it's a short protocol. It's 15, 16, 16 minutes and uh, you can do that every week. So so yeah, that's that's a really great way of standardizing your monitoring. Correct. And uh, Anemiek, uh, what, what would your take-home messages be regarding uh, these monitoring and markers of functional overreaching? Uh, yeah, actually uh, the same as Robert, I guess. I think there are two, three components. Uh, do not only measure load, but also fatigue. Uh, do it with uh, multiple parameters, as else you might get the wrong, else you might get the idea that an athlete's actually fitter whilst actually being fatigued. And indeed, monitor with regularity, try to implement it in the weekly training schedule. Yeah. Uh, if you are coaches, uh, which uh, you could, of course, try to measure everything. But I think in practice, that's very difficult uh, to, to give an athlete uh, like all the tests and, and all the questionnaires and, and so on. If you, might, if you have to limit yourself to just, let's say, three or four maybe markers, two or three markers, whatever seems doable, feasible, but sufficient, what would the most important ones to monitor be? I think, I think within a submaximal test, if you, if you look at that, uh, you know, I, either depending if you clamp it on heart rate or you're going to clamp it on power, I think it's either one of those two, which plays an important role, I think, just to monitor over time. Uh, what's happening with that. I think heart rate recovery, uh, definitely, if you'd be able to accurate, to measure it accurately. So I think the trick really here is to make sure that if you measure heart rate recovery, you need to, you know, as soon as you stop, stop moving around, don't chat with your neighbor, uh, uh, breathe normally as you would normally do, because there's multiple factors that can influence that component as well. So I think there's a, there's a real value in that. Uh, RPE is a, is a very important one. And quite easy to do, especially when you're familiar with that um, with that uh, with that scale as well. And I think if you're looking from a questionnaire point of view, um, I've I've got a strong preference for the Delta uh, over the Poms because it's it's shorter. You should be able to do it in 60 to 90 seconds. So it's really really quick, um, and it's less complicated or, or less extensive uh, for practical use than a Poms. Um, so I think I think the Delta is quite a nice way to see, okay, you know, do you experience stresses, and in which specific areas do you do that, yes or no? Yeah. And final question on on this topic is: uh, Do you think that functional reaching should be 
avoided? Uh, should should you limit yourself to if we like uh, we're, we're moving on a spectrum here, as you said at the beginning, but if if we look at it a bit more in in terms of the different categories is it enough to get to that acute fatigue state and and try to avoid being functionally overreached or can can you get equal or better adaptations without entering that state of functional overreaching no i think in my opinion it's definitely needed um i think if you train good and you train properly it means that you go through different through different cycles or micro cycles uh, you, you need to prescribe different types of stresses on the body because elsewhere, after a certain component, you know, you can do endurance training, endurance training, endurance training. But if you don't give a different type of stimulus, uh, you, you're not getting a, a, a next good training response to it. So, so combining that with, for instance, high interval training or a training camp or a, or a, a phase in which you push yourself into that function overreaching uh, has shown to be highly effective. Uh, I know that Bellinger did uh, recently a systematic review around that. Um, I think if, I, if, 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 you know, I think the really hard part here is what what do we call functional overreaching and when does it become non-functional overreaching? If you look at the uh, the breakdown of that, and this was a, a schematic that was proposed by Mielsen, Roma Mielsen from the VUB in Brussels, uh, functional overreaching, Jenny, tends to, you know, recover, you tend to recover that in, in days from weeks. If, I think if you try to be a little bit more specific in anatomy, I think try to do that a, a little bit as well, is in most cases that, you know, that recovery, you should be able to supercompensate from that function of a reaching state roughly in between seven, maybe 10 days max, but, but nothing more than that. If it takes more than that, then I would already quite quickly, you know, classify it as a non-function of reaching. However, when you look at the, um, the, the breakdown of the proposed mechanism, it says weeks. And what is weeks? Is it one week? Is it two weeks? Is it four weeks? And where it says non-functional reaching said weeks to months. So, so I think I think this is where the tricky part is. And and yes, you need to be careful to not uh, non-functional overreach. But I think in certain phases, and especially when you target for it, I think functional overreaching as part of a training camp uh, is 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 really well. I think. Lisa Dukras showed that in one of her studies, uh, where they had a training camp in, in female cyclists, where they where they you know perfectly overreached them, and then within within a couple of days they were bouncing back quite quite nicely. Um, so so that's that's great to see. So yes, I think yeah. I think there's definitely a place for for you know training camps and and um, getting functional reach. Again, th- that's monitoring as well. Monitoring is not only. You know, on the one side, predicting that you maladaptate to training, but you can also use it in this space to make sure that you want to push people slightly into that slight fatigue state and then follow that by a super compensatory recovery component. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a great answer. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, I, I have a bias, I guess, in my, my coaching method is trying to avoid avoid that and more so stay in the acute fatigue realm but but probably it's it, it really is depends on how you think about where to draw the line between functional and non-functional and uh, and also whether you i, I mean I, I i agree with you like if you if you do it deliberately and you you're controlled you know how long you'll stay in that state and then when you will recover to get out of it and get the super conversation, then it's uh, it's a it's a great tool to use. I think I think a lot of athletes run into issues perhaps because they uh, without they they're not uh, intentionally in the state of functional reaching, and it ends up 
ends up dragging out for a long time and eventually that ends up leading to non-functional rather than functional overreaching that there would be maybe uh sort of coaching anecdotal <laughs> my coaching yeah. anecdotal take on things yeah I, I think i think the trick here is 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 i think a, a crucial component is and i think that comes with years as well as to listen to your body i think as an athlete you're going to make the mistakes actually i always say you need to make the mistakes because if you if you don't push yourself too far or if you go mountain biking and you never go over the handlebars, you don't know where your limit is. So the only way to learn where your limit is, is to go over that limit. And hopefully you don't break a collarbone and hopefully you don't get you know, severely fatigued. Um, but it's, it's being honest to yourself and being able to recognize that what you're doing is, is not working and learn from it rather than not do it. So, so I think yeah. with, you know, it's 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 a constant learning process, and that accounts for a range of different people. Uh, that accounts for your your average Joe that likes to you know be very active on mountain biking or in, in the triathlon discipline. But it also happens to um, to people at at Olympic level, you know, that get it wrong. And I think we're seeing that currently with within the Olympics as well that uh, we we're getting guys who who were top favorite not making it and not winning the gold medal and failing. And we're seeing guys that somehow got it spot on and do perfectly well. So it's a, it's a, a complex situation to peak at the right time and do everything perfect in the build-up as well. Yeah, no, and I totally agree. Like f- finding your edge every now and then is, uh, is a really valuable lesson to learn and, and will help you train better and better as you get more and more experience uh, with that. That's but uh, let's... Let's move on to discuss the Lambert Submaximal Cycle Test, the LSCT. Uh, so we already discussed the protocol. I'll just briefly repeat it here. So it's six minutes at 60% of max heart rate, six minutes at 80%, and uh, three minutes at 90%, followed by measuring your heart rate recovery over the 60 seconds that, that follow. And uh, yeah, to control it perfectly, uh, doing it on the ergometer would be would be the way to go. Uh, so... So can you describe the, the background of this test, uh, wh- why you invented it, and uh, what what you see the advantages of this test being compared to other testing methods that, that might be used for similar use cases? Well, I think the big benefit of, of a test like this, and, and this was, was just to get more monitoring into, um, in, and especially initially where it started, into the cycling world. Uh, we developed this test. Uh, we started beginning developing it beginning of 2005. This was in the years... January, when most cyclists just got a contract, and as long as they performed, um, you know, that was all fine. So they could fly all over the world and train wherever they liked and with, without actually having a, a, a proper and good scientific and, and training structure support. As we know, that has massively changed over the over the last years. Uh, I think, and you, you talked to one of my postdocs, Tony Van App, in, 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 a, in a podcast, uh, you know, a while back, uh, he's a clear, great example of you know how teams nowadays have a whole scientific staff and a whole coaching staff around it that really trains and specifically monitor athletes. That's I think where we started in developing. Can we develop something that we can use as a warm up uh, before a, uh, a strength training session or even before a ride, uh, and see if that you know how does that relate or not relate, uh, and and how does that go? Um, so I think that, that was basically the starting point uh, where we started developing uh, a lot of the stuff. That uh, was done in collaboration with uh, uh, Duran Swart, who is now actively involved uh, with the UAE. 
Um, and it's and it's been widely used uh, in in multiple sports around around the world. Um, and slowly uh, started transferring into the world of triathlon as well, because as we know there, we've we've got a we've got a really high training loads. You only two disciplines uh, in um, uh, that you tend to do on a, on a day if you if you relatively high level or professional level. Uh, and then one of the other things that that happened as well uh, as part of a, in making a little bit of bridge to the article that we're referring to uh, is is uh, due to the different connections I had. Um, it ended up also within the Dutch Triathlon Association um, and, and within that team as well. And this was mainly due to uh, Luis de la Haya. Luis de la Haya is a, is a coach uh, that has been working for uh, uh, Lotto Jumbo, uh, who is known as Rabobank, and uh, has looked after and still look after a range of different uh, different athletes under which uh, Annemiek van Vleuten, for instance. Um, and so, so when he, he made a change... Uh, from from professional cycling to 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 triathlon side about three years ago, uh, preparing the triathletes uh, in preparation for Tokyo, and he basically came around and said, "Rob, is there any way that we can use a Jalicity in the in a triathlon world as well?" And so, so that I think was a starting point of of the of of using to see how we can use and is it actually possible to use that test within a triathlon setup? Yes or no. Yeah, uh, actually, so I hope that to talk to Luis on the podcast uh, uh, after the Olympics, we we have been in contact about that. So so hopefully we can make it happen when when he's less busy uh, right now. Of course, uh, still we'll focus on the Olympics. Uh, so yeah, that study that you mentioned there with uh, comparing the LSCT or uh, investigating how the LSCT relates to performance in triathlon was a really interesting one. Can can you discuss a little bit what you found there and uh, and also what previous studies you have done uh, that look at performance in cycling and LSCT? Yeah, yeah, we can. I, th- I think, um, let me first focus on, on the triathlon story. So I think I think the, the, the story here was very much around, you know, it's, it's all great and well that the LSCT, which is cycling-based test, can predict cycling performance pretty well. But, you know, if we then look at triathlon, do we actually need then three different type of submaximal tests? Do we need a, a running test to look at the running component? Do we need a, a swimming test to look at the swimming component, uh, which, you know, is, is a little bit harder to plan already in a, in a pool? Uh, um, or, and the one for cycling, or can we combine that? So I think when we initially started off this project, there was a, a student on uh, Maastricht University site, Minke de Jode, who did an internship with Louise at, uh, at the Dutch Triathlon Association. And together with Sander van Berg, we sat around the table and said, okay, let's, let's do a, a small case study of, of six athletes uh, building up for the uh, Dutch National Championships in Rotterdam. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll familiarize them to the LSVT on a regular basis. They tend to train together in the south of Holland. Uh, and then just before the start of the of the day before the uh, triathlon, uh, we asked them to do the test, and then they can do their um, their national championships as they would like, as as good as possible. And we'll see how good the relationships are actually. So how well is that LSD be able to predict a performance? Yes or no? Not only of the whole triathlon time, but also within the different disciplines as well. Um, and and this was really unique because we ended up with with you know three of the six uh, grabbing national titles because we had a an under twenty twenty three group um, and under nineteen I think if I'm if I recall it correctly um, and I th- so so we found really good correlations between uh, uh, the LCT and um, 
and split cycling time, which, which as, as we almost would expect it, because we know it relates really well to cycling performance as well. But what we found is that we also found relatively good relationships between uh, their running component um, and their swimming component as well. Swimming a little bit less than the, than, than the rest, uh, and then overall component as well. So, so although it's just a start and we, we further developing this field, also, also within triathlon, LSD seems to you know, be a valuable tool to to monitor overall triathlon performance, and 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 we're hoping to create a database uh, what what how, how we can further develop this. Yeah, when we when you calculated these correlations and the associations between performance and the LSCT, what specific parameters within the LSCT is it that you're looking at? You looked at specific stages, the power of specific stages of the LSCT. Uh, so Correct. Which ones were those stages? So, yeah. So, so I, I think what we, of course, do, as I explained before, we, we're clamping people at 60, 80, and 90% of, of max heart rate. The 60% is relatively easy. It's just, a, 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 you know, you, you want to get the, if, if you're totally cold and you get on the bike for the first time, you, you just warm up a little bit. A lot of the a lot of the professional cyclists find this almost a little bit too easy. Uh, it's actually the purpose of it. So it's just you know it's really easy just loosening the legs a little bit before we get into the harder part. I think the real value lies into the second and the third stage, which is six minutes at eighty percent, uh, which which is a genuine experience is a nice intensity to ride on, um, and then the last three minutes are done at ninety uh, percent of uh, max heart rate, which on the one side sounds really high. Uh, but actually, it's it's not too bad if you if you take into calculation that if you would if you would ride a 40k time trial, so let's say you just do over an hour of of riding, the average heart rate tends to be around 92% of max heart rate for the entire for the entire period. So riding three minutes at 90, yes, it's hard. I think on an RPE scale, people are roughly sitting at about a 16, 17, sometimes 18. On a age scale, they'll probably sit around an eight. It's, it seems to be doable, uh, especially when you when you're not when you're not functioning over each, because then it might be a different story. Uh, but especially power output, the mean power output during the last five minutes of each each test of stage two and stage three, they'd be really indicative of you know uh, the the performance, what and how well the guys did within the triathlon. Yeah, yeah. And the last five minutes is because the first minute you want to kind of accelerate up a little bit so that you quickly can get your your heart rate to the to the correct level to the target level. Correct, correct. Yeah. So no, that's that's really interesting that that you found found those correlations with not not just the cycling split but the the overall uh, performance and and the different uh, disciplines, the swim and and the run uh, as well. Um, how how do you recommend implementing the LSCT into a training program we talked a little bit i guess about you you could do it on a weekly basis but what is it that you see in the field is typically done uh when when people are using the lct i think people using an lct or a standard standard you know test to to monitor themselves there are definitely two variants that are quite common the one the one is done uh, indoors uh, on either a ergometer or an indoor trainer or a watt bike uh, which which then is followed by a strength uh, training uh, session. Um, so so there's a group that really prefers that. They use it as a general warm-up. It's not too long. And sometimes they shorten the first stage a little bit as well, uh, which is not, a, you know, from a scientific point of view, maybe not always ideal, but practically, you know, that, that really works. 
And, and the other way around it is that some of the guys do it outdoors. Uh, you get a little bit more noise around it because, you know, you don't have the same temperature. There might be winter one day. The one time it's raining. The other one is, is 30 degrees. But they tend to do, uh, to do, tend to do it out on, on, on a flat piece of road. Uh, and, and they do it in, in that specific way. Um, so, so that's, that's something to work, work around as well. Um, alternatively, there's been people, and I've been one of them as well, that during certain periods in which we know people are going to struggle to reach their 90% of target heart rate, especially when they're functioning overreached, is that for a short period of time, we swap it around. We actually clamp it on power. Uh, and so there we, we take uh, an X percentage of, of power at, at those specific uh, stages. Uh, and we look at heart rate, um, submaximal heart rate. You just, you just, at that point, you probably tend to compensate a little bit of your heart rate recovery measurement because it's not going to end up exactly at the same spot as, as the other one. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that another, another aspect of that is that, well, if you struggle to reach those heart rates, then you already have the information, like the kind of information that you would want to get from the test and maybe, maybe time to rest a little bit. And then next time you do that's it, it. You, you might yeah. be back to normal. I think that's where that's where Bellinger did a lot of his work as well. He he looked at you know we we of course now specifically focused around heart rate recovery and he looked at rate of increase. So if you would put a standard stressor on, you look at how quickly does that heart rate go up or not up. Um, yep. and that's you know that Ferrari type of engine that we talked about earlier. You want to ref it up quickly and and and. and so, so that again is another component that you could look at as well um, to to see how things are uh, are progressing or not. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, definitely like I, I have never quantified that, but but I know from personal experience that when when you are a little bit too tired, a little bit too fatigued, then you definitely see that it takes a lot longer to get that heart rate up. As, as you said, you're definitely not no Ferrari in, in, the, in that case. So, yeah. so quantifying yeah. that could be, could be really interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I think that uh, that's really it. That, and I'll put the links in the show notes to, to both of the studies, both on functional overreaching and uh, uh, LSCT and triathlon performance. So people can, uh, can have a look. Uh, just one final question to both of you. Annemiek, do you want to start? Uh, what are you currently working on uh, in academically? Do you have any interesting projects going on? Yeah, I'm actually looking into the relation of training and performance in women's cycling. Uh, and also, uh, luckily, with Robert. Great. Robert, uh, do you have anything anything in addition to that going on? Uh, there's always lots of things going on. I think I think the most exciting part where we currently work on, and this is, is together with Tone Fenerp, is uh, we, we, we're working together with, with a group of Spanish uh, researchers. And we've got about three uh, professional teams, uh, women and men's together, and we're looking at, uh, at the power profiles. So the uh, MPPs, we call it, or the power profiles of uh of riders and uh to almost get a little bit of a breakdown on uh you know within professional cycling where do where do who sits do you file you know you, does your power profile match up with you know the 90 the top top 10 percent in sprinting or the top 10 percent in gc contenders or not so that's a really exciting project uh, with with lots of unique data uh which currently is under review with uh, with uh, with an american journal um, so we keep our fingers crossed that uh, you know the reviewers see the value of that as well, and and we'll, we'll be able to get that published quite soon, which I think will be a a, a great 
paper. There's a male and a female version of that for for future researchers as as a guidance where where are currently you know or or top riders in the Tour de France uh, sitting at or not. Um, and for the rest, uh, there's an exciting project around um, one of the Dutch uh, triathletes who who've been using the LCT for over two years. Um, and she she's got she's got all the all the LST data and she's got all the performance data. So uh, I'm, I'm quite keen to get started on that as well to do a longitudinal case study to see you know how how well in that specific person uh, was it able to track her performance throughout throughout all the races over a two year period. Mm, yeah, no, th- those are both really cool. Uh, really looking forward to uh, seeing those the data from the from the World Tour cyclist in particular. That mm. that uh, that will be really exciting. Now let's move on to the rapid fire questions, and uh, I'll ask uh, Anamik first, and then Robert one one question at a time. So, Anamik, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, actually, all sources that translate science to practice. So don't forget mm. why they do it. The practical applications. And uh, Robert, uh, I, I think arranged well. I think science sport, uh, science of sport, uh, you know, hosted by Russ Tucker is always a, f- a fun thing to read. Yeah. Uh, it, it really has the practical application. Uh, on the cycling side, past cycling is is a really great component as well. Uh, and for the rest, yeah, I'm, I'm following a lot of the you know the, the current research that's coming out and being part of that. Um, so looking looking forward to uh, the science and cycling congress that we're hoping to host again in uh, in September. Right, great. Uh, Annemiek, what's uh, an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Uh, having passion for what you do so that uh, each day gives energy instead of uh, takes it away. And Robert? I think probably listen to your body. Uh, I think I've the one thing I've gained over the years is, is uh, more is not always better. And uh, you know, when you're fatigued and you, when you're not coping, uh, instead of trying to push through, maybe listen to your body and and don't be scared to take a day off because it actually you know might benefit you more than you think. Yeah, and uh, Anamik, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Actually, everybody that keeps challenging themselves and others around them uh, are giving quite a lot of inspiration, and hopefully will do so in the next coming years. And Rob. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an interesting one to ask. Uh, you know, there's so many great people around in my field that I look up to, um, and one one of the people that I closely worked with uh, during my period as a student was Tim Noakes. Uh, quite now, it's controversial around you know low, low carb, high fat diets, where I, I probably don't agree with with you know the, the the full stance. Although I think he makes a fair point, but I, one thing I think that Tim really, really you know gave me and learned me is to to, to question things, don't take things for granted. You know, we 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 are being taught that uh, VO two max initially was the only component that determines uh, um, uh, maximal exercise capacity. I think that now has shifted to a much more balanced component. So so challenging beliefs, challenging, you know, why should why we do things and and why we've got the habits that we have and and should we change them or not. I, I think that that has really been inspiration to me, and that's the one thing that Tim Nooks definitely um, lured me uh, to to be critical and and look at those different components. Yeah. Uh, finally, where can people follow you on uh, things like social media, ResearchGate, and and so on? What what are the best places to to keep in touch? 
Uh, for me, for me, it's definitely uh, Annemiek. You want to go first? Uh, yeah, on LinkedIn always works. Uh, ResearchGate as well, and uh, Twitter, of course, also. What was your Twitter handle? Uh, that's a really good one. Well, you don't need to look it up. I can I can find it and I'll put it in the show notes. So so that's okay. Thanks. And uh, Rob, uh, of course. Now I'm watching quickly at my Twitter handle because although I do a little bit of Twitter, I'm not I'm not super active on Twitter probably. Um, but your Twitter would be one of the things. The other component I think which I really enjoy is ResearchGate, uh, purely for the fact that uh, it allows you to you know share research. It allows you to share uh, pre copies of the 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 science that is out there, uh, it allows you to also add uh, a, a research on that might not be published in, in one of the peer-reviewed journals. So I think it's a great platform if you if you science-orientated to to get through that. Uh, but yeah, either of those two components. If people always you know feel free if you if you want to have a copy or you want to have a little bit more info about something to to send an email. Yeah, I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm sure we can put that those details on your on your website as well. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that for sure. Okay, well, thank you, uh, thank you both, thank you, Annemiek, thank you, Rob, for coming on. It's been great chatting to you both, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for your time, and thanks for the interview. Yes, thanks. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. We'll have links to both Robert's and Annemiek's Twitter and ResearchGate, as well as the papers discussed, both on markers of functional overreaching, as well as on using the LSCT in triathlon. And I also have links to a couple of uh, previous episodes that I've done that are tangentially related, related to this, particularly to overreaching. One was a very recent one, actually, episode 297 with Phil Bellinger, where he talked about muscle fiber typology and recovery and training adaptations, but also overreaching. Uh, so, so that's an interesting one to go and uh, listen to next if you want to learn more. But another one is uh, from back in the day, from episode 159 uh, with uh, Cyril Schmidt. That one was also a very good episode, so it might be worth going and have a look at that as well. Next week's guest is Nikki Winfield Alquist, uh, who will talk about advantages of including sprint training in your cycling and swimming and running potentially as well. Nikki based his entire PhD on this topic, so he uh, created he did multiple publications around including sprint training in cycling programs and how that might impact performance and uh, what mechanisms for adaptations that might be uh, behind the performance changes so it's a really interesting one uh, stay tuned for that next monday if you're looking to take your triathlon to the next level uh, i would highly recommend that you consider getting a coach or at least getting a training plan and we have plenty of that to offer on scientifictriathlon.com go and check out the coaching services and the training plans that we have there if you're interested and finally big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take the free online sweat test and get a personalized hydration strategy and try the quick carb calculator and if you want to book a free one-on-one video consultation you can do that as well you can get 15 percent off your order with the promo code that triathlon show 15 on precisionhydration.com and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart. Keep loving craft love.